I'd like to begin by telling you a little bit about, just a little about somebody that I truly, truly admire from the middle of our decade, a few years back. His name is Rob Bell. He received his BA from Wheaton College where he met his wife, Kristen. He went to Fuller Theological Seminary to get his MDiv and was a youth intern at Lake Avenue Church in Pasadena. He attended a Christian assembly though in Eagle Rock and it changed his views on church forever. It was his first not I have to, but I get to go to church. Anybody here ever had a I get to instead of I have to? This was his first one. Not duty, but desire. Not obligation, but passion. At a Taco Bell on Colorado Boulevard after these services, he and his wife discussed what church can be. He accepted an internship to Ed Dobson's Calvary Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He then announced he would plant his own church in Grand Rapids and call it Mars Hill Bible Church, where the watchwords were, do it yourself, strip it down, bare bones, take away the fluff and the hype. Without ever reading a book, still hasn't, by the way, on church planting or church growth, no classes, no seminars, no minors. Someone just uh, had rented a sign to put up in front of the building where they wanted to meet and he ordered it to be taken down. People will have to want to find us, he said. No advertisements, no flyers, no promotions, no signs, but people came. A thousand people the first Sunday. 4,000 the first six months. They got so large that they were actually donated an old mall, an actual shopping mall that they converted, stripped out and converted into their church. They were up to 10,000 in three services in less than two years. In the days when uh, services were just being available to be put online in the first days of what we now know the cloud, 50,000 downloads every Sunday were happening to get a hold of Mars Hill sermons. In 2005, Zondervan releases Rob's first book called Velvet Elvis, became a New York Times bestseller. In 2007, churchreport.com named him the 10th most influential Christian in America. In 2011, Time Magazine included him in their list of the 100 most influential people in the world. All of Christianity, it seemed, at least all of American Christianity, were so happy to have this guy on their team, to have him on our side, until a few years ago, that is. In his book that he released called Love Wins, he happened to just raise one question. One question he raised. And that's all he did was ask the question on whether or not the teaching of an everlasting burning hell was in line with what we know the character of God to be. He then discussed the various theories which could be different in there. Just discuss them. Just ask the question and then discuss them. And included in the list, he told, he told of not what he believes, but there is a teaching called universalism where everyone will be saved. Suddenly, because of this, Bell is labeled as a universalist, which leads to the worst of labels, heretic being one. And evangelical mainstream Christianity in America left him behind left him completely behind. It seems that much of the American church cannot stomach a God that would not eternally torment his children who choose not to worship him. And they said so. Now I know that when we hear this story, we uh, reach back to start clapping our hands, you know, uh, clapping our backs to say, well, <laughs> that's, that's why I'm an Adventist, is that we don't believe in that, do we? Yet, yet how did we do with the teaching of the investigative judgment? How did we do with what we were given? 
Instead of teaching in the investigative judgment that it was a judgment that was supposed to be done before the second coming, to which we could take assurance that when he comes, we could already be assured that we've already been judged. And that was what the teaching was supposed to be. Instead, we turned it into some forensic reading of accounts. And we're taught and taught our children that when he comes to your name in the book, whoo, you had better have everything taken care of. One stray sin, not repented of, or asked forgiveness, and guess what? You're done. A young Adventist, I remember one time, wrote on Facebook, he said, if you've ever been, you, you, you know that you're a Seventh-day Adventist, if you've ever uh, pondered a sin that you just committed and you could hear your name being erased from the book of life. We didn't do so well either, huh? The investigative judgment ended up becoming our own, maybe milder, gentler version of everlasting burning hell. Dr. John Pauline says, if that everlasting burning hell is a big, big, huge ribeye, the investigative judgment is a big frank, a vegetarian version. We still used it as a tool of what? Of fear. Probably no more effective church in the middle, uh, no more effective tool for the church of the Middle Ages than the fear of hell to get people to do what they wanted them to do, to get them to give, to get them to worship. Fear, force, coercion. Yet you and I know the fundamental choice that we've always had, that we were created with. We can choose between life and what? And death. Death is death, life is life. Trust God, the life giver, or choose not to trust him. We were given what? Freedom. It is who we are. The Lord commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely what? Die. Trust that God knows what he's talking about. He's the only one that can give life. He says, if you trust me for life, stay away from that tree. I made it. And I'm telling you, this is what I would like you to do. Moses, in his last address to, to, uh, to um, Israel, says in this whole experience that we've had, this 40-year experience being delivered, 40 years in the wilderness, I've come to this conclusion, that heaven and earth is to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose what? Choose life. So that you may what? So that you may live and that your descendants would live. Freedom. Fundamental to us, fundamental to us as creatures, fundamental to us as worshipers, as believers. So we come to the end of our series today, and I guess I, I, I understand that this series has been tough on us, and that some of you may be a little weary, and that some of us have had our toes stepped on. Believe me, I step on my toes first. You know what, if we all stand together, we can't help but having all of our toes stepped on, right? When somebody steps on them. And here we are. And I knew that I wanted to go back and I wanted to talk just a little bit about why I called this series what I called it. A fourth angel's message. Why do you wonder? I take it from chapter 17. And chapter 17 gives us a different perspective just a little different view, if you will, of the same battle or the same war that the dragon has declared on earth and on the church. The two false churches, the beast from the, from the sea and the beast from the land. This is just a different view of it. For the past three months, over three months, four months, we've been looking at that war. We've been looking at what it means for us. And so this is just a little bit different view of it. And this is why I called it what I called it. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. This is the beginning of what we know as the plagues of the bowls. 
You had the seven seals, which had plagues in it. You had the seven trumpets, which have plagues in it. This is the seven bowls. I don't happen to believe that, that they come chronologically. I don't believe that the trumpets come after the seals and the bowls come after the trumpets. I believe that they all happen uh, concurrently, if you will. That's why they're all seven. By the way, because they all have the same starting point and they all have the same ending point. The starting point is Jesus' ascension into heaven. The ending point is his second coming. So just before this starts, we tell the reason for the bowl plagues. The reason that the plagues have to be poured out on both people, on believers and non-believers living at the end, it's because of the war that we've been studying. But before it comes, one of those angels, one of them, speaks to John and he says, come, I will show you the judgment of the great what? Of the great harlot who is seated on many waters. Judgment, he's telling John, come, you get to see for yourself. By the way, the only way that you and I or anybody can judge anything is we've got to what? We got to see it, we got to know it, we got to study it. We, we have to take it in, we have to look at its fruits and then and only then are we allowed to what? Are we allowed to judge? He is giving John the opportunity to see and to judge whoever or whatever this great harlot is, this prostitute. By the way, I took this from the uh, New Revised Standard Version and I cleaned it up just a little bit. I had to because the New, Re New Revised Standard Version uses a bit more graphic word for harlot than you and I are used to, especially on a Sabbath morning. Are you with me? She's seated on what? On many waters. Many, many waters. And the angel will actually tell. You don't need me to explain it to you what the waters are. The angel will actually tell John in verse 15. He said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are what? Peoples, multitudes, nations, and what? And tongues. She's sitting on the people of the world. Is there anybody else left out? of multitudes, nations, ethnicities, peoples, tongues? Is anybody left out? She's sitting on all of them. How did this prostitute come to sit on these nations and tongues and multitudes? How does this prostitute come to sit? And, and by the way, the language reminds you of something, doesn't it? In Matthew 28, one of the last words he says to the disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all what? All nations. Ethnos, ethnicities. Make disciples of how many ethnicities? All of them. It's the same word that the harlot is sitting on. There are a few more in Revelation. John likes a little bit more of alliteration. There are a few more, but it's the same word. The reason that the harlot is able to sit on all the nations is because of who she was before she became the harlot. And it was where she was commissioned to go. The woman, it turns out, is the church. And her mission has become adulterated. She was supposed to go out and make what? Disciples, disciples of who? Disciples of Christ. Disciples of Jesus to make disciples of the lamb that was slain. And she is sitting on them. She's ruling all of them. But her mission has become adulterated. Because she sits on them and has a relationship with the kings of the earth that the church shouldn't have. She's committed fornication with the wine of those fornication. The inhabitants of the earth has become what? has become drunk. Till here, John has only heard about this prostitute. You and I know who she is because we've studied in depth Revelation 13. By the way, just before our scripture reading, the woman, in order to uh, uh, survive and thrive, even if you will, the attack that the dragon was, give, was to give, she had been just put into the wilderness to be protected. And now the angel takes John back to that wilderness 
and we see what happened to the woman. She has an unhealthy relationship with the kings of the earth and all of the inhabitants. By the way, it's unhealthy. She's sitting on them. She's able to rule over them. Why? Because they're drunk. I've been around a lot of drunks. Some of them aren't so pliable, but others are very pliable. They're drunk. So he was carried away. So John needs to see this now. And when John sees it, something happens to him. He's carried away the spirit into a what? Into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and 10 horns. The last woman he saw in the wilderness was who? Revelation 12, it was the church. It was the woman who was standing on the moon clothed in the sun and and wearing a crown of stars. She was the light of the world. She had the gospel. She had the message. She'd given birth to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The last time he saw this woman, she was the church. And now look at her. She's sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, seven heads and 10 horns. Looks just like who? Looks just like the dragon. Looks just like that first beast that arose up out of the sea in Revelation 13. She was supposed to be there to be protected against the persecution of the dragon. He used a flood of peoples himself. He had control over the peoples. A flood of people is supposed to take this this woman out. And by the way, in the Middle Ages, he, he, he dang near pulled it off. There were only a remnant left. But she comes out now riding and controlling the very persecutors that had been persecuting the church for 1260 years. She's now on them. She rules them. Dr. Pauline points out the one thing that's missing from the heads of these uh, that are on these horns is their what? Is their crowns. You know why? Cuz she's in control. She's the queen. They are no longer kings. She rules them now. So instead of being persecuted, she's now the one doing the what? Doing the persecuting. Using a nation or co-opting the nations to accomplish it. Using a power that Jesus never ever gave authority to use. He said, I give you all my power and authority. But somewhere in the interchange in the wilderness. Somewhere during the persecution, the church thought it was a good idea to add a little bit more authority in order to do something about all this persecution. So then the persecuted becomes the persecutor. It's the church. It's a shocking image. It's an absolutely shocking image. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. On her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of all of earth's abominations. See, Babylon, amongst many things, when Babylon was Babylon, it was an impressive power, wasn't it? Ruled by this genius of a kid, this 22-year-old Nebuchadnezzar who comes to rule the world. It was an impressive power, but as in other days, in ancient times, it was a, a military and a religious power. In those days, Nebuchadnezzar didn't just defeat Judah and take her into captivity. In order to defeat Judah and take her into captivity, he had to defeat Judah's God. And he seemed to have done it. He walked right into the temple where no one was allowed to walk and picked up every object of worship and walked out and carried it back to the plain of Shinar. 
that plain in Babylon where he will eventually, as ruler of the world, of the known world at the time, would put up a statue to himself. So somewhere at the base of that statue that we've seen that picture a thousand times, somewhere at the base of that statue is some sort of altar to Nebuchadnezzar as a Babylonian god and in it is the Ark of the Covenant and the menorah and the, and the altar and the altar of incense and the table of showbread telling the world, I'm in charge now. By the way, it's what he was doing to Daniel and his friends in Daniel 1. He selected Daniel and his friends in Daniel 1 because they were noble and without defect. He was training them to become priests in his new, new church, in his new system, with him to be worshiped as God. So Babylon becomes now the prophetic name for anybody, anybody who claims to be worshiping God, but really worshiping a power that we're not supposed to be worshiping, at least those of us who claim to belong in the church of the lamb that was slain. That's why Babylon now is, it becomes the uh, watchword, the byword for this adulterated worship. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly what? I was greatly amazed, astonished, in awe, is that word right there. In awe, astonished, greatly amazed. Why is he so amazed? What is he wondering? It's also wonder. He's also wondering at the same time. What is he wondering, if you will? Why is this so seductive that even the disciple whom Jesus loved, when he sees it, he wonders? That's why I called this series the way that I called it. Because he represents us there. He represents every worshiper of the lamb that was slain and the church that was founded in his name and by his blood. We've all been enamored or wondered at one time or another about this power. It looks good. It gets stuff done, doesn't it? So John is wondering. And again, he's amazed because again, the word woman, common in all of Greek, the last time that even the word woman appeared in the book of Revelation was back in chapter 12. Even the word, so even linguistically, it's, it's no mistake as to who this woman is. John is amazed because he's seen this woman before. Then even the language of the prophecy indicates who she is. The last time that it was used, the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. By the way, the commandments of God, love God, love your neighbor as yourself, and in order to be able to do that, I have to be free. I have to have free will, I have to choose. And the testimony of Jesus is that all of us can choose. He died to make sure that we could choose. And that this adulterated mission of the church now is hijacking the mission and using power it was never supposed to use, using power that takes away people's freedom and causes fear in their hearts and terror and coercion. And all who would not worship the beast were killed. Angel knows what's happening too. The angel says, why do you what? Why are you amazed? Why do you wonder? I'll tell you the mystery. The mystery of the woman, of the beast that carries her, which has the seven horns and the 10 heads. Why do you wonder? I'll tell you all about it. His reaction is not righteous indignation. John doesn't look and say, oh my goodness, that, that abomination, I, 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 can't even, I can't even look, I, I, I need to keep pure. It's, it's not that. He's attracted to it, but it also, it's not about lust. It's not about uh, that he's, that he's uh, tempted in, in any sort of sexual way that this is. This is spiritual adultery. 
And I think he's wondering because he's old and he's tired. And for about 70 years of ministry, he's been terrorized by the mightiest nation the world has ever seen, by the mightiest empire the world has ever seen. And he wonders because he's the only one left out of those men that marched out of Jerusalem and that 120 disciples in order to formulate this new church to go unto all the world. Paul's been dead for 20 years now. Andrew and Matthew the same. Peter for 30. His own brother's been dead for 40. Philip for 30. Jude, Simon, Bartholomew, and Thomas, all 15, all martyred. except for one, the one left standing, the one that sees this, the one that knows that right now the church at, 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 uh, at, at Ephesus has, has lost their first love and it's about that time. The next church will be Smyrna, the martyred church, the church that, told, that Jesus told, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but, but this is it. Most of you are all going to be martyred. John's been beaten, imprisoned. He's been boiled in oil. They forced him to drink poison. And even this stay, this exile on Patmos, on this rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea, is the third attempt at martyring him. So of course he's wondering. You know why? Because he sees a way out if the church would just begin to use a power, maybe not all my friends have to die. Maybe I can live my years out in peace. I don't know about you, I do not know about you, but if I were John, that's exactly what I'd be wondering. Because my temptation to, to give in to this power has been a whole lot less than what John has gone through Why is this God so attractive? Especially for those of us who've seen the living God. Who's actually, actually we have seen his full form and majesty. Jesus has revealed himself to us. Jesus actually says, if you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen God, there's no further revelation. There's nothing else to show you. Why then is the other one so attractive? Why is this beast so attractive? Because if given over to our natures and not being under at least the presence and the influence of his Holy Spirit, that's exactly the God we would invent. And humanity is the one that invented him. It's the one that we would create. We would create God in whose image? In our image. Which means we would give him the same nature that I have the same temptation that I have. We don't have to imagine what kind of God we'd create because we did it twice in church's history. And God gave the first one full reign from 538 to 1798 and then in a new form in 1850. All we did was keep changing the, na the nation part that it could grab hold of and we kept changing the theology to make it easier for us to, to, to just salve our consciousness so that we would grab hold of it. The latest Pew Research poll done in the last two months shows that 45% of Americans say that we should be a Christian nation. 45%. That's up 25% from just 10 years ago. So again, when we look at the beasts, we look at them on two fronts. The false church has two fronts. It has two powers that it's brought together, the national part and the Christianity part. Remember, if we learn nothing else, we learned that, right? I didn't wear you out that much, did I? There's two parts to this. It's the nation part and the church part or the Christianity part. The nation and the nation's values by which they govern. 
The Christianity part is the church's values by which they operate, govern, and carry out their mission. And so let's talk about the national part. This nation right here, what are our values as advertised? One word is what's supposed to sum up our values. What is it supposed to be? Freedom, right? America is supposed to begin and end with what? With freedom. All men created equal. Free, that there will be no state-sponsored effort to infringe or limit these freedoms. As far as we can tell in history to the level that we are, are trying this experiment, we're the only nation in history who is trying this. It's an experiment. It's messy, isn't it? But we're giving it a shot. No sponsored effort to infringe or limit these freedoms. Religion, speech, press, to peaceably assemble, to address grievances, the right to bear arms, regulated, but all, yes. The one sticky thing though, the one sticky thing is how do I allow an individual to exercise their rights without infringing on someone else's rights? By the way, the beast wouldn't be concerned with that at all, would he? He isn't. But America is. We've got systems in place to ensure that. It's inherent. Religion is just one example. My religious values cannot be made compulsory for someone else who is also supposed to be free to worship. So as a church who claims to believe in religious liberty, how do we feel about others' right to worship? No matter what church they are, no matter what religion they are, amen? So diversity is a must in a place like this, isn't it? Diversity is a must. It should be the very first fruit of a free nation. Diversity should be its very first fruit of a land claiming that everyone is gonna be free, diversity should be it. Except a Christian nationalist doesn't feel that way. Diversity is a threat. By the way, I've seen that, I've seen this in our own church. I've listened to, to testimonies and councils when the world church gets together. And by the way, a world church by definition should be what? Uniform or diverse? Diverse. For some reason, we see diversity as a threat. 25% who, uh, they, they did a poll that said, uh, how well do you wear the label Christian nationalist? In other words, if you're suited, if the name or the label suits you, how comfortable are you with it? And, they, and the ones that said, I'm somewhat well being labeled as a Christian nationalist, and I'm extremely well at being labeled as a Christian nationalist, 25% estimating about 50 million Americans. And somewhere on that line, in those that, that, that believe that, they believe that 30% of them believe that religious diversity is a hindrance to national unity, and nearly 50% say that racial difference is a hindrance to national unity. There's a book now, unfortunately, on its way to becoming a bestseller. It's by a Christian nationalist author named Stephen Wolf. The book is called The Case for Christian Nationalism. And in a chapter on diversity, he says this, Christian nationalism does not deny the good of viewpoint diversity, but as with the American regime, in other words, what he sees the regime should be, the Christian regime in America, the acceptable range ought to be bounded by principles of inclusion and exclusion. Uh, one of those principles is the primacy of Christian peoplehood. In other words, in their nation, Christians become primest, first, foremost, considered. 
And so Christian nationalism will exclude at least the following from acceptable opinion and action. One, political atheism. No such thing as an atheist should be in politics and running our nation. By the way, I didn't know until last week, do you know that there are 17 states in our union that is it against the law for you to be an atheist and run for office? 17. I don't know how well those laws are enforced, but they're still on the books. The second is subversion of public Christianity. That's what should be excluded. Subversion of public Christianity. According to who? I think that's the scariest part about all of this is who gets to define that? He does. And he does it, you know, to, to excess. I mean, to, he, you know, he's thought it out. Third is opposition to Christian morality. That would be against the law. That would no longer have primacy. You, you, you cannot oppose Christian morality. Heretical teaching and the political and social influence of non-Christian religion and its adherents. Those would be excluded from our Christian nation. Not the mixing of the words. The, uh, that, I think that that's what gets me. The mixing of the words that only belong in religious rounds and, and the mixing of words that only belong in political rounds all come together in this arena. He uses words like atheism and heresy and blasphemy. Those are our words, right? We're allowed to use those. But to take that which is blasphemous to a Christian and make it blasphemous on a national civic level. Anybody here comfortable with that? Acceptable opinion and action, only that which is Christian. So, for its part, on the national part, Christian nationalism destroys the freedom a democracy is supposed to have. No matter how we feel about how well this would work, on how safe it would make us, or how moral it would make us, it doesn't matter. At its core, it destroys the democratic part, doesn't it? It destroys the freedom part. If a Christian is nation, it is not free. If a nation is, if a, if a nation is Christian, it is not free. No matter how well we think our definition of morality would work if it were civically enforced, it simply is not what? It still isn't free. On September 12th in 1960, there wasn't anybody here alive in 1960, was it? Senator John Kennedy addressed the Houston Ministerial Association as the Democratic candidate for president in 1960. All of them Protestants. What do you think they wanted to talk about? <laughs> I, just, I just wonder if, if, if this would have been an Adventist. What if he had gone, instead of the Houston Ministerial Association, that he had gone to the Texas Conference of Seventh-day Adventists? What do you think those uh, conference officers and Adventist pastors would want to talk about, about this guy running for president? What were they concerned about? His faith. They were concerned about his faith. And first of all, I have to admire him for walking into a room like that, for even accepting the invitation. And by the way, he did not shrink back. He did not hold back. Their concerns were what his Catholicism would do, where it would lead him, how it's going to influence how he would lead this nation. And he began this way, he said, while the so-called religious issue is necessarily and properly the chief topic here tonight, I want to emphasize from the outset that we have far more critical issues to face in the 1960 election. The spread of communist influence until it now festers 90 miles off the coast of Florida, the humiliating treatment of our president and vice president by those who no longer respect our power, 
The hungry children I saw in West Virginia, the old people who cannot pay their doctor bills, the families forced to give up their farms, and America with too many slums, too few schools, and too late to the moon and outer space. That's a pretty good platform. But what do these Protestants want to talk about? These are real issues, he says and continues, which should decide this campaign. And they are not religious issues. For war and hunger and ignorance and despair, no, no religious barriers. But because I'm a Catholic and no Catholic has ever been elected president, the real issues in this campaign have been obscured, perhaps, perhaps deliberately in some quarters, less responsible than this. So it is apparently necessary for me to state once again, not what kind of church I believe in, for that should be important only to me, but what kind of America I believe in. I believe in America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president who should he be Catholic or not how to act. No Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, where no church or school is granted any public funds or political preference, and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. I believe in an America that's officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source, where no religious body seeks to impose its will directly or indirectly upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials, and where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against us all. He tried to assure America's Protestants that his Catholicism would remain personal and that he knows very, very well his duty to uphold and protect the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. How many here remember that speech? As Adventists, did you believe him? We probably didn't, did we? It sure rings well now, doesn't it? And I do say this beyond party and anything else. I wish we, he would have had more time to prove it. Anyway. Party, pulpit. By the way, party in this church election. I think you noticed much to the chagrin or maybe much to the delight, I don't know, that I managed to go nearly four months here without ever mentioning a political party. I did mention one once, but that was only to show, it was only to show how friendly the church, the American church had become in politics, that's all. We have been an election site. Our, our polling place is the fellowship hall ever since I've been here and uh, I believe that it went on long before that that I think that, that uh, Elder Pate was the first one to bring a polling site to our church. I wanna, I wanna tell you that, that since I've been here in seven years, I don't allow electioneering at all on our property. State law says 75 yards from the entrance to the fellowship hall, people can electioneer. Well, I'm sorry, we own that property beyond 75 yards. And on behalf of you as a church, as a church that believes in religious liberty, who believes that a church should not be sponsoring any candidate for anything, I don't allow electioneering. Campaigns put signs, two weeks out, I take them all up and throw them away, regardless of party. Because I really believe that we shouldn't be in any way endorsing anybody, anything. And, and, and for, for an hour or so on Sabbath, you've given me this place. And to me, it's holy ground, especially when it comes to politics. 
I'll ask you one thing though, because it did come up last week in a couple of conversations I had. I'll ask you one thing about our politics and our parties. Not that we make our parties Christian, but number one, that we strive to have our theology feed our party politics and not the other way around. Would you agree with me on that? I'll do it if you do it. I'll try it if you try it. Promise? Pinky swear? That we refrain from the tactics that a political party is, is willing to go to to get their point across. We refrain from those tactics because we would define those tra- tactics as unchristlike. Pinky swear. And that we stand up for those that our parties and our politics are leaving behind for only one reason, because Jesus does. Would you agree with that with me? All right. See, the prophecy doesn't picture it very well. If you look at the painting, if you look at the picture, the prophecy does not uh, make it look good. Noted that the woman in charge, when the woman is, char- is in charge, when the church is in charge of all this, notice all kinds of nastiness is going on. There's drunkenness, there's adultery. And by the way, the cup is, is, wine, is, is wine, it's not wine, it's not alcohol, it's blood, it's blood of the saints. John's amazement just might be also that he and his fellow disciples were martyred by Rome. We expect that of an empire like Rome. But I'm amazed now it's because it's the church. The ones that they started, that they were in charge of, it's now the church that's doing the martyring and adulterating the values. So I said that Christian nationalism destroys the freedom of democracy on the national part, I'll tell you what it does to the church part. It destroys our witness as Christians. The prophecy shows it. There are many, many, many circles, circles of influence that matter, by the way, in our society, in places that we really wanna help, that we get around certain agencies who happen to be secular, and if we open up by being Christian, they won't even listen to us. because our witness has been so destroyed by this nationalism. Real quick, notice what the prophecy says. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. All the inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will be amazed when they see the beast because it was, is not, and what? and is to come. Note, was, is not, and about to ascend to destruction. Was, is not, and is to come. That's the beast. He was, and he what? He is not, and then he's about to come. But only for his what? Only for his destruction. The lamb, Jesus, Revelation 1, the one who is, who was, and is to come. See, the beast is eliminated from the is part. He's eliminated from being present because it's temporary. The church grasping onto this national power, the, the, the power that it wields and seems to influence, it's, it's temporary. It doesn't work right now. It shouldn't work right now. We should see people being martyred and it should affect us. And I'm not talking just about giving our life for the church. I'm talking about the people that nationalism seems to exclude, leave behind, and attack. By the way, real quick, if we're going to be a church of the lamb that was slain, we're gonna have to have a conversation one day about uh, the, the people that the national church, that the Christian national church is rejecting. What are we going to do with them? We have to have a conversation about that sometime, don't we? because they're being rejected in droves. At its core, nationalism can't be Christian and have the Christian remain Christian. A Christian church, if she has messed with her core or DNA, which is Jesus, his power, his authority, 
Not too many things that are binary in this world. There are not a lot of things that are either or, not a lot of things that are black and white. This happens to be. The church cannot mess with this power. If we do, we're no longer the church of the lamb that was slain. The violence, the weaponization. These are united in yielding their power and authority to the beast. That's what John says. These. Whatever form, whatever degree, it's them. And they make war on who? They make war on the lamb. And the lamb will conquer them for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. How do we know that the lamb will conquer them? Because the lamb has already conquered. It is finished. We can't go back. We can't shrink back. That is the only thing that moves us forward. That is the only banner that moves us forward is the love of Christ for us. What it does for us to be born again and the ability to love someone else as he has loved us. There's no compromise to this. There's no shortcut to it. Christian nationalism destroys the freedom of a democracy and it destroys the Christian witness of the church, period. I finished last week uh, talking about what Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, on what it had wrought in the 20th century. That just those words about turning the other cheek, about not being violent, about, about looking to, to change the dynamic of violence and retribution and everything, just those words and what it brought about for a nation like India, what it brought about for a nation like America in the 20th century. I thank you for indulging me. I know I talk a lot about Dr. King and about Gandhi. I thank you for indulging me. And why do I talk about him as much as I do? Because of that very application, that you take just some words that Jesus says on a mountain and you mix it with someone who is willing to, to not just hear them, but to do them. And in the 20th century, we may have seen the greatest examples of nonviolence carried out that, that maybe the world will ever see. The one thing that I left out that I didn't talk about because I was trying to hurry, because I know that you were indulging me and I appreciated it, I really did, was the witness of the church at the time that that was happening. Gandhi never, ever, ever became a confessing Christian. The rumors are is that, that he had many Christians working in his circle. He had many Christians who said that you're the best Christian I've ever met. You might as well become one. And he never would. Why? Well, think about the nations that he was living in. Think about the persecution that he was trying to, to alleviate. South Africa, India, all of, those, all of those nations were colonized. And they were colonized by people who felt that they had the authority of God to do so. The sovereign of, of Great Britain is also the sovereign of the church, the protector of the church. Manifest destiny, they believed, the colonists, every colonist believed, manifest destiny is a divine right. We could preach to Gandhi till we were blue in the face. But that nationalism destroyed our witness with him. And it didn't help when they finally convinced him in South Africa to come and listen to a revivalist. His name was C.N. Andrews, Charlie Andrews. By the way, he became a very good friend with Gandhi after this. But they, they went to see him and, and Gandhi wasn't allowed in. Why? The color of his skin. And I've talked ad nauseum about the Southern churches and, and the white clergy and the opposition to Dr. King. Christian nationalism destroys the witness of the church. Nationalism destroys the freedom of democracy Nationalism destroys the witness of the church.
One last thing. It's only five after. This is it. One last thing. The woman was clothed in what? In purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. Clothed in purple and scarlet. Those words both are only used one other time in all the New Testament. Actually, no. The scarlet one is used many more, but it's used particularly uh, in, 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 well, let me do purple first. Purple is only used once. I mean, once by one author. You see it many times in Revelation talking about this harlot. But the other time that it's used is in John 19, and it says the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold, what? The man. In Matthew 27, it said the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand, knelt before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. He was mocked. Throwing the purple and the scarlet on him was mocking him because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Purple and scarlet is the robe of Rome's royalty and Herod's royalty. He was mocked by the worldly national power, if you will, on the very day that he would bleed and die to set them all free. Everyone wanted him to be king. He had followers who tried to force him to be king. They all wanted him to be king. They all wanted him to do something about the other kingdoms. They mock the love that appears to make him weak. They throw robes on him. So I'll leave you with this after 17 weeks. The American church is satisfied with the lamb as a beast. They will be satisfied with the lamb-like beast. They'll be satisfied by mocking this power. True Christians will settle nothing less for the lamb. Amen? It's the lamb that was slain. His power, his authority, his love, his grace. And we won't shrink back. We won't compromise. We won't accept a shortcut or another power. The national church is satisfied with a lamb-like beast. Let him. But let's also be prepared to take care of those that they left behind and also be prepared maybe someday that we may end up having to be martyred ourselves. I'm not talking about just giving up our life. I'm talking about giving up uh, ideals, giving up the, the right to fight back, giving up the right to, to, uh, to spite at each other the way that, that, that uh, people do in politics, uh, the way to uh, call someone out, to judge them in public, to humiliate them because of what they are. Every time that we put that impulse aside and give in only to the love of Christ, we're being martyred. We're setting our own life aside for who? For someone else. And if we set aside our life and our opinions and, and, and everything that, that makes us only right, then Jesus said, if you do it for them, you do it for me. So thank you. Thank you for uh, indulging me. I'm sorry if I wore you out a bit. I really am. Uh, I was, um, I was enjoying this, enjoying myself, enjoying being with you, enjoying learning this. And every time that I was done, I would, uh, I, I mean it, I would go home and I would say, well, at least we get to face it together. You and me. In a place that at least knows, <laughs> at least knows and ascribes to that maybe one day they come in contact with us, they're always 
going to go away with the grace of God.